Well, once again, I just want to say uh, thank you for being here. I'm Daryl, the assistant pastor here at 12 South. And for the last, well, I was going to say for the last little while, for the one week, uh, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. We started this last week with Nehemiah 1. Uh, knowing that uh, as we read through this story of Nehemiah being called uh, to leave the king's uh, courts, to leave the king's castle, to head back to Israel, uh, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, his hometown, uh, and to rebuild uh, the wall that had been torn down, rebuild the temple, rebuild some houses. Uh, Jerusalem lay in ruins. And Nehemiah felt that God's uh, call on his life was to uh, leave his prominent position and go back uh, to help rebuild. And we know uh, that even a story that seems as archaic as Nehemiah, there are so many parallels uh, and so many ways in which this is relevant to us. Uh, because as we have progressed through the pandemic, uh, we, we're often guilty of saying as we come out of COVID, but I think we all know that that's not where we are. Uh, so as we're progressing uh, through the pandemic and as we are calling folks uh, for as much as they feel safe and as much as they feel okay to do so, uh, to come back uh, to church, because what has happened is during this time when we had a period of where we weren't meeting, we're meeting virtually, uh, and then we're meeting sort of in a, in a very limited capacity. Uh, and then as we slowly have opened back up, we found that uh, a lot of folks have left and we're not mad about that. Um, God has been really gracious to actually replace those folks. Um, but now we are uh, finding that we're with a whole new crop of of believers, a whole new crop of Christians who want to be involved here. And we uh, need to uh, sort of pivot and, and really look at where do we want to take Midtown Church as pastors and as elders and as leadership. Um, and as you guys are partnering with us, we want to ask you uh, really to take a risk and come along with us. And what this might mean, uh, we're, not, we're not really sure. We just know that uh, God is up to something here as he has been uh, wildly faithful to us during this uh, kind of strange season. And so we look to Nehemiah for wisdom. We look back uh, to the ancient text to give us some wisdom um, on what to do and how to uh, really speak to God's people uh, about what a season like this looks like. So that's why we chose Nehemiah. Um, All of our churches and our movement are doing this. Um, And so uh, that's where we find ourselves this morning or this afternoon is going to be in Nehemiah chapter two. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, that's where we'll be. Uh, Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. Uh, you're going to have 1 two, through 10 on the screens, but I called an audible, and I'm going to stop at verse 8. I get paid by the hour. So. Um, Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8 is where we'll read. So uh, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. But why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river. 
that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of God was upon me. Let's pray together. Father God, as we look at a passage about timber and letters uh, and safe passage beyond the river, we have to ask ourselves, what in the world uh, are you up to uh, that you would bring us to such a passage? And so uh, tonight, as we dive in to what uh, you are teaching us through the life of Nehemiah, uh, may we see uh, in there what you have for us. Uh, May we see Jesus there. May we see Jesus in these passages, knowing that um, you don't call us to be like Nehemiah. uh, You call us to be like Jesus. Um, And to be like Jesus means that we need uh, the faith and the mercy and the grace that can only come from him uh, as we strive uh, to obey commands as we strive to uh, learn what it is to live in such a way. Uh, Father God, would you have grace on us? Uh, Would you forgive uh, the sins of the messenger? Forgive my own sins, uh, for they are many. Uh, Would you forgive the sins of those who sit here? Protect us from the evil one for this next little bit uh, as we learn what it is uh, to love you more deeply and that we would leave here rejoicing because of it. Uh, Jesus, show yourself to us. Uh, Holy Spirit, invade our hearts, invade our space, uh, invade this room, uh, and start a revival that begins here and goes to the ends of the earth. Uh, It's in your son's name we do pray. Amen. Uh, So in the book of Nehemiah, uh, last week as Elliot spoke, um, word has gotten to him that Jerusalem lay in ruins, uh, and he was real tore up about this. And so as we get to chapter 2, we're really going to see uh, three things uh, that we can learn from the life of Nehemiah here, uh, three things that we can learn uh, about our own lives as we follow Jesus. Um, first, we see that Nehemiah is going to risk greatly in his faith. Uh, the second thing we'll see is that he's going to request boldly of the Lord, or of the King, rather. And lastly, we'll see that we remember fondly uh, the object of our faith. So risk, request, and remember, starting with our first point here tonight, risking greatly in the faith. Uh, so it has been since the month of Chislev uh, that Nehemiah had heard, uh, had first received word that his hometown Jerusalem, the town that he loved, uh, the town where his dad was buried, where his granddad was buried, his great-granddad all the way back, um, all the forefathers of the faith who were buried there, uh, he gets word that his town lay in ruins and somebody's got to go fix it. And he feels the pull from God uh, that he's the one to go do it. Uh, Its walls have been destroyed by fire. It's a Chernobyl-level wasteland uh, that was once this prominent city of God. Uh, Because when the walls of the city come down, uh, we don't really experience this because we don't have that. Uh, But we have rivers and natural boundaries and things like that. Uh, But when the walls of the city come down, that means they're prone to attack. It's going to happen again and again and again. Uh, And folks hated the Israelites. uh, And so they were always going to be constantly attacked And Nehemiah, who, even though he's not living there, has such a heart for where he grew up, saying, I want this place to be fortified and at least have some sort of defense uh, so there's not just a holocaust against my people every few years, uh, that these invading armies, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, will just keep coming in and laying waste to his land. And so he's so tore up about this. Um, And we see in chapter 2 as it picks up that uh, that started in the month of Chislev, and it's now the month of Nisan, and that means nothing to you. 
because it means nothing to me. I don't know what that means. Uh, but on the Hebrew calendar, uh, Chislev to Nissan is four months. So for four months, um, it's been four months since he got the news from Jerusalem. And so for four months, he's been praying, he's been fasting, he's been crying, he's been pleading with God, show me what it is that you want me to do because I know I have to do something. I can't just sit by um, here in the king's courts while my hometown lies in ruins. So he's begging um, God, show me what it is for four months. And now we get to chapter two and he's in front of the king uh, and Nehemiah is going to shoot a shot. He's gonna take a shot and it's a risky shot to take, especially to our Western eyes, kind of our Western ears, um, kind of from our human perspective um, because Nehemiah is going to step out here and it's career suicide. What he's about to do is he's going to leverage his career for his hometown. Um, and you know what that's like. Uh, you know what it's like to risk in your job. Uh, you know what it's like to risk for your job. Chances are that most of you are here uh, because you found that there's a job in Nashville and you wanted to take it. And so you move to a town where you might know five or six people, unless you went to Ole Miss and then you know about six million but you move to this town where you might know a few folks. Uh, you're going to live, you know, like with five other folks off of Nolensville Road. Uh, you're just going to make it work. You're going to eat pork and beans, whatever you have to do. I'm going to make this work because I'm going to take this risk that vocationally, this is what God has for me. Um, Nehemiah is taking a huge risk because Nehemiah has made it. Um, he is a Jewish man who has one of the highest ranking positions in a Persian kingdom. That doesn't make any sense uh, because the Persians kept wiping out the Jews all the time. Uh, but Nehemiah, there was something about him, something on his LinkedIn that made uh, Artaxerxes want to hire him. And so he brought him and, 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 and really lifted him up to this position to where uh, as chapter one ended last week, he tells us his job title, that he's the cupbearer to the king, which meant he was the most trusted man uh, in the whole kingdom. Because uh, old Artaxerxes, old Zerk, had to trust that all the food that was coming to him, all the drinks that were coming to him, uh, were not going to be poisoned. And it was Nehemiah's job to do so, which is a weird job to take. Hey, do you want to taste this and see if it's poisonous? Here's $40,000 a year plus benefits. Hey, uh, Nehemiah, take this job. Um, He's making sure that Artaxerxes is safe and that Artaxerxes can um, execute the office of king over the entire world. He's the most powerful person on the planet. And Nehemiah is his right-hand man. And so when Nehemiah shows up to work this day and he's got a sad face on, Zerk's going to be suspicious. Um, there's a chance, like, it's probably not Artaxerxes was asking this question because he, like, cared so much about Nehemiah. Chances are he's asking this question because uh, when the guy who makes sure that your food's not poisoned has like a sad look on his face, you're going to be a little confused. Um, is there X-lax in these brownies, Nehemiah? Why are you so sad? What's going on here? I'm about to drink this wine. What'd you put in? Did you put ink in here? Like what's going on here? Um, and so he asks him, hey, why are you so sad? And uh, Nehemiah responds, this is an autobiographical account. So he's writing his own book. And he responds uh, and he says he had great fear. And he said, may the king live forever, which is a weird answer to a question. Hey, why are you sad? May the king live forever. Um, he's reassuring Artaxerxes here uh, that he's not going to be poisoned, that there's actually nothing wrong with the food that he's about to get. Uh, but he does say, 
I'm sad because my kingdom lies in ruins. I'm sad because the city that I love where my parents are buried um, is in ruins and he's mourning it. He's mourning this fact. But he's not mourning his hometown the way that we mourn that Nashville is like overtaken by pedal taverns. He's not mourning in the same way because his heart is so connected to the story of the Lord and to the people of God that he says, I can't be happy knowing that that's going on. And Artaxerxes responds with to him, then what do you want from me? Which is a weird question to ask too, uh, because what Nehemiah is also saying here is, hey, my town is laying in ruins and it's your fault. Uh, because Artaxerxes is the one who gave the command to stop rebuilding the wall, to burn the gates and for all the folks to leave. So he's asking Artaxerxes, or he's about to, hey, I want you to go back on your word. And I actually want you to start rebuilding again. Uh, so he's in this wildly um, kind of adventurous terrain where Nehemiah is gonna have to risk greatly uh, because of the faith that he has that God is who he says he is. Um, so when he asks him, what are you requesting? The most powerful man on earth is asking him, what do you want from me? Um, Nehemiah realizes that he had him. He had him. He knew that he had made it. He had made it. It's crazy again, like I said earlier, that this Jewish man would be in such a position. And it would be folly for us to think that Nehemiah got to this position um, because he's really good at his job. Nehemiah was probably good at his job. It's probably not wrong. Um, but to think that, uh, that the God of the universe wasn't orchestrating this um, is crazy. Because there's no way that Nehemiah would be in such a position Um, knowing that his heart could never be at rest while his hometown lies in ruins. He risks it all for a land and a people and a church that he loves. And he risks it all for the God that he loves. Because remember, for the last four months, he has been in prayer. Every moment that he's able to, praying, fasting, pleading with God, what do you have for me? And so we know what it's like to take risks with our job. We know vocationally what that means. But we're going to ask a lot of questions as we're going through this. And I want to ask you tonight, when was the last time you took a risk spiritually? When was the last time that spiritually, in your spiritual life, in your spiritual walk, uh, you wanted to take a risk uh, knowing and trusting that God would meet you there? Because that's really what Nehemiah is doing here. He's not just taking the risk uh, of career suicide and leaving, he's taking a risk that spiritually, I have spent so much time with God that I believe with everything in me that I'm willing to to push this job aside and go and pursue him. Uh, We have to ask, when was the last time uh, that we would take a risk like that spiritually? Um, when When was the last time that we've prayed to God and said, God, there's something stirring in me that when I see the brokenness of this world uh, and the beauty of heaven and the place where those two things collide um, and there's a passion in me, what do I do with this? Uh, That's what we wanna ask you as your pastoral staff, as the leaders of church, uh, 12 South, is where is God lighting a fire in you that you feel like, I gotta go do something about this? Um, And here's the thing about the pool of risk is that it is, as Tim Keller says, a place where uh, toddlers can wade and elephants can swim is that it might mean something different for everybody in here. Uh, For some of you, 
Uh, it could mean going with Christina and kicking down doors and rescuing folks uh, from human trafficking, uh, going into very dangerous places, bringing the light of God in those places. It can mean going overseas. Um, I used to pray when I was a kid, like, God, I'll do anything for you. Just don't send me to Kenya. I don't know why I didn't like Kenya that much. Um, but it could be praying, God, you may want me to go overseas. You may want me to go to South America. You may want me to go up north. There could be a tons of things that God might have for you there. And those are the things that we look at as a little wild. Uh, but it could be something even as seemingly small as, God, maybe you are asking me to join uh, a discipleship group. Uh, maybe you're asking me to do what Nehemiah does here and be emotionally vulnerable with somebody, uh, someone that he trusted. Uh, maybe God is asking you, and this might be even more wild, uh, to walk into those dark places in your heart um, and take somebody with you because you, you don't want to be alone when you go there. Uh, to find a trusted ear, a trusted counselor, someone you love um, that could just sit and listen with you as you work through your own story. To ask somebody like that. Um, there's tons of, of places to stop along the spectrum of risk. But we know that as God's people, uh, God is going to continually be calling us a little further than we think we're okay to go. Uh, for many of you, it could be uh, something as crazy as going downstairs and helping with kids during the nine o'clock or the 11 o'clock service. Uh, something that seems small, but has great kingdom impact. But God is calling all of us uh, as we are walking through this book of Nehemiah and as we're marching into the world together as the kingdom advances on earth, uh, that there are places that we're gonna be called to risk. And you may not know what those are. Um, I'll give you one. Uh, I just did, I'll do it again. Uh, where is the brokenness of earth meeting the beauty of heaven? And where are those things pushing in against each other? Where is the injustice coming in that's driving you mad? Uh, where is the sadness? Where are folks who need healing? Where are folks who need help? And you say, I think I need to be a part of that. Um, the Christian life is constantly asking God, how do you want me to join you uh, in the kingdom advancing across the earth and in making this place uh, the city of Nashville, a better place to live. Uh, there are tons of opportunities for that. Um, and as we find those places where God is calling us to risk greatly, uh, we then have to make some requests of him, uh, which is gonna bring us to our second point, request boldly in the faith. Um, this is what Nehemiah does. If you look at verse four, if you don't mind putting that up there, verse four. Um, if the beginning of verse four is, is our boy Zerk ever slow, so slightly cracking this door open, um, the end of verse four is Nehemiah putting like a breaching charge on the door and blowing the whole thing off its hinges. Uh, because at the end of verse four, after Zerk asks Nehemiah what he wants, Nehemiah prays. He prays. Uh, and it's not recorded for us here. Uh, we don't know if it was a long prayer. We don't know if he asked Artaxerxes if he could like take a knee for a second. Um, it might've been like on Shark Tank where he turned and walked out of the room so he could mull over the offer that Mark Cuban just gave him. Um, but what we do know is that Nehemiah uh, likely didn't do that. Likely it was just something as simple as uh, God may my request that I'm about to make be in line with what you want. God may our hearts be aligned. And then he goes into what he wants uh, because uh, it's likely not a long diatribe because that's what Nehemiah has been doing for the last four months. 
Uh, he's been in his prayer closet. He's been pleading with God. He's been fasting. He's been praying. Um, he's been asking God to show him all those things that he wants. So now at this moment, orchestrated from heaven, that God puts him in front of the king and the king says, what do you want? Nehemiah prays and then he acts. Acts, not acts. I speak for a living, it's fine. Uh, Nehemiah prays and then he moves. I'll say that. He prays and then he moves. He goes into action um, and he looks at Artaxerxes and he does something that uh, the church is not very good at. Uh, He tells Artaxerxes exactly what he wants. I want some letters from you because I'm gonna have to go over the river and through the woods. So I want some letters from you. Uh, I want some wood for uh, for the temple, some wood for the walls and some wood for my own house. Um, And I want you to give me some time off of work so I can go do it. He knows exactly what he's going to ask. And he makes those requests. And uh, Artaxerxes has one follow-up question for him. And he asks him how long he'll be gone. And I'm not a contractor anymore. I spent some time in that world. Um, But you don't have to be to know that it probably takes a little while to build a city. Um, I heard that Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, And so it's going to take some while. Nehemiah is going to be gone for a while. It wasn't like a six-month sabbatical that he was taking from his job. Um, He doesn't put it here, but in chapter five, which we'll get to in a few weeks, uh, we learned that Nehemiah was gone for 12 years. And so he's asking this king, hey, I'm gonna leave for 12 years, which means you're gonna have to find somebody to fill my job. Um, I don't know know if any of you are employers where you hire folks, but right now is a hard time to find work. Um, Imagine, like I said before, trying to find somebody who's willing to like taste poison for you, but they don't know you that well. Um, He's gonna have to find somebody that he trusts, somebody that he loves, Um, to take Nehemiah's position. Um, There's a lot going on uh, that Nehemiah is asking. And he needed this letter to guarantee passage. Um, He needed to tell his his boy Asaph, who guards all the wood, I guess, hey, I need some of this wood. Um, All these very direct requests that he makes of the king, very direct requests that he makes of God. Um, Which brings us to the next question we wanna ask is, How is the busyness in our own lives causing us to miss out on what God may be intending to do through us? Because Nehemiah has spent all this time uh, in the prayer closet, all this time praying and fasting, uh, asking God, what do you have for me? What do you want me to do about this? My heart is burning for Jerusalem. What do I need to do about this? Um, And he slowed down enough to hear from God to get the words to know exactly what to ask for. Um, Are we so wrapped up in the whirlwind of our lives that uh, we we find it hard to hear from God? Uh, Chances are the answer is yes. Um, It's true for me, it's probably true for you. Um, That life gets so crazy, it gets so busy, we're so wrapped up in our work um, that that almost without trying, I don't think we want this to happen. I don't think any of us are like, nah, who cares about what God has to say? I'd rather bang some numbers together as an accountant. Like that sounds terrible. Um, I don't think any of us do this on purpose, but it just happens. Uh, It's sort of passive that life comes in and takes away uh, those things uh, that we wanna give our hearts to. And then we find ourselves sort of wondering where all the time went. Uh, And so how can we, like Nehemiah does here, spend time intentionally with God to hear from him? Jesus did this all the time. Jesus was a fairly busy person. Um, 
but Jesus did this all the time. Anytime he would heal someone or uh, when he cast out the demon and uh, they wanted to make him the king, but he jumps on a boat and goes across the lake and then they find him spending time alone with God the Father. Um, when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he took just a couple of guys with him because he went to pray. Uh, Jesus all the time spent time alone with God, which is kind of a weird thing to think about that Jesus was God, but he talked to God. Now I'm confused. Um, but Jesus did this all the time. And if Jesus needed to do it and Nehemiah needed to do it, uh, we really need to do it. Uh, we really need to stop and to slow down and ask God, where are you asking me to move? Uh, where are you orchestrating things that I can jump into and be a part of your kingdom? So, because for many, my, certainly myself included, uh, I'm an Enneagram six, so I hate everything and I don't trust any of you in this room. Um, we get caught up in uh, what, what we call paralysis by analysis because there are so many choices available for us. Uh, there's like the world is at our fingertips. There's so much available to us uh, that when we look at taking risks and even at what to ask for in those times, uh, it's like the beautiful mind when all the numbers are floating around. Um, we find ourselves analyzing so much that we're afraid to move. And we're paralyzed. We're paralyzed in fear. We're paralyzed uh, like we want to move, but we don't know how. Uh, there's so much going on there um, that we need to stop and pause and, and ask God, hey, give me some clarity on where I need to move. Um, because God has promised that he'll do that. Um, because Nehemiah shows us that the heart that is truly captured by God is always gonna be focused on the world around you as much, if not more, than focused on the world within you. Uh, we never want to neglect what's inside our own hearts. Right? We wanna make sense of our emotions. We wanna make sense uh, of what we're struggling with. We wanna make sense of what God is doing there. Uh, and so we do focus on ourselves a little bit, uh, but we also have an eye turned toward the world. That's what Nehemiah shows us here uh, is that he's sad in his own heart. He wants to figure that out, but he also knows, hey, these people that are over here, they need my help. I'm the guy who can go swing a hammer. I'm the guy who can get a construction crew together. Um, Nehemiah shows us uh, that caring for the world outside and caring for the world within, um, is, they're equally important, that it's good to do both. Um, and he also remembers uh, that God the Father um, has, the, has the heart of Nehemiah in his hands. God the Father has his hand on Nehemiah. Uh, and he knows what the proverb tells us, that the king's heart is like streams of water in the hands of God, and he tells it to move where he wants it to move. See, he can make these requests of Artaxerxes, uh, these things that seemed risky were really not that risky at all for Nehemiah because he understood that while he worked for the most powerful man on the planet, the most powerful man on the planet worked for the God of Nehemiah. Uh, that God has orchestrated all these moments. He used, we call this common grace, uh, that God can even use folks who aren't connected to him, who can use folks like Artaxerxes to really accomplish his will. Uh, we see this ultimately in the master plan of hell, right? That Satan tries to kill Jesus and, he, and Jesus dies. Satan thinks if we kill Jesus, uh, that his followers will scatter and this whole movement will die. Uh, but we see that when, that when Jesus dies, it actually sets the world ablaze. Um, God does this all the time. 
And so as we come to uh, realizing all that God has done all throughout uh, redemptive history, uh, we see uh, that God is always faithful to his people. And so uh, that is gonna bring us to our last and final point, remembering fondly the object of our faith. Uh, Because none of this great rebuilding story is possible unless we look at verse eight. Uh, Verse eight is what makes all this possible. He says, and the king granted me what I wanted because the good hand of God was upon me. The king granted me what I wanted because the good hand of God was upon me. What Nehemiah knew to be most true was not that he could leverage his friendship with the king, not that he could leverage his position. Uh, He could even have gotten the king a little tipsy. Uh, He tells us in the story that the king was there with his wife. It might be like one of those things where you have to ask, like if you can go to your friend's house and your mom says yes, but your dad says no, and you like work them against each other. He could have done that with the king and the queen. But what Nehemiah does here uh, is that he doesn't do that. He doesn't act sneakily. He doesn't act shrewdly because he understands that the God of heaven had his providential hand upon him the whole time. He understood the proverb that I quoted earlier that the king's heart is like streams of water in the hands of God. He tells it where to move. Nehemiah's confidence and Nehemiah's conviction rested solely in the God who orchestrates all things. The Persians were the enemy. And yet Nehemiah is gonna use their resources to rebuild God's city. It sounds crazy. It sounds crazy, but he believed. He believed in the God of heaven. He didn't just believe for the sake of believing. Like we have that written on our wall over here. We have believe on the, not on the inside, it's on the outside. Uh, Sorry to trick you all, (laughs) I punked you. Uh, There's believe, it's written on the wall outside. Um, If you're a Ted Lasso fan, right, that's huge right now. It's above the door. Um, It's in my garage, I have that sign. Um, But it's not believing for the sake of believing. Um, What Nehemiah doesn't have here is like faith in his faith um, because that doesn't get us anywhere. Um, Because you know this, uh, your faith changes all the time. There are days that you feel like you could tackle the world and there are days that you're like, I can't even get out of bed. Our faith changes all the time. Uh, But it's about what is our faith in? What is the object of our faith? That's what the Bible uh, is more concerned with. The Bible understands that you have faith. Uh, Scripture understands that, God understands that. Uh, What scripture is more concerned with is what is the object of our faith? We see this with the disciples when they're in the boat with Jesus and the storm's going crazy. Um, And the disciples are tripping, they're freaking out. Um, They feel like they're about to die. They're so dramatic, the disciples in these passages. I don't know, I'm not there so I can make fun of them. Um, But they're so dramatic. They're like, Jesus, don't you care? We're about to die. They're screaming at him. Why don't you wake up? Why are you asleep? Uh, And Jesus gets up and he calms a storm. But then he turns to them and he asks them, where's your faith? Not at, he didn't ask them, do you have faith? He asked them, where's your faith? Is your faith in this storm? Is your faith in this boat? Or is your faith in me? Where's your faith? And it's a crazy response in that story. It says the disciples marveled and they were afraid. And they said to each other, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? The transfer of their fear goes from the storm to the person in the boat with them because they knew this, that Jesus could tell that storm to shut up because Jesus was the one who caused it to blow in the first place. This is what Nehemiah knew. God could move the heart of King Artaxerxes because God's the one who put Artaxerxes there in the first place. 
um, that he could make such a request uh, and that he could remember uh, that God is so faithful. And so we, we struggle all the time. The church, I'm, and I'm really sorry about this, we've done a terrible job of explaining what faith is. Um, it is kind of weird to think about. Um, but when we talk about having faith, we're talking about having faith in Jesus. Because a weak faith in a strong Jesus is better than a strong faith in anything other than Jesus. Um, that uh, we don't need to measure each other by how strong of a Christian they are, how great of a Christian they are. Um, that we can have um, a faith that may seem weak. Yet when that faith is in Jesus, knowing that Jesus doesn't move and that Jesus is certain and that Jesus is secure, that that's okay. When we think about the Passover story that happened in the book of Exodus, um, think about something super bloody for a second, guys. Um, Think about the Passover story where the angel of death is coming through Egypt and God sent him. Uh, to kill all the firstborn kids because Pharaoh's heart was so hardened. And the last plague that comes before God's people leave Egypt on their way to the promised land, before the parting of the Red Seas happened. Um, imagine being one of those Jewish families. Because you can be one of two of those families, right? You got the blood on the doorposts. That's what's gonna save you from judgment. Um, and you're sitting down and you're having dinner. You got James Taylor on the record player. Uh, it's a real chill night in your house. Um, and outside there's all this chaos going on. And the kid asks, dad, what's going on out there? Hey, there's a judgment coming on Egypt, but we had the blood on our doorposts and we're gonna be okay. So you got a strong family and, and think of an, another family that is uh, nervous and scared. They don't have James Taylor on the record player. Um, they're, they're hunkered down and wondering, there's all this screaming going on, what's gonna happen to us? And the dad says, I'm not sure what's gonna happen. All I know is that God said, let's put some blood on the doorpost and we did it. And I, and I think that that's what's gonna save us. It's not, the mez- it's, not, it's not how strong or how weak our faith is. Uh, it's the fact that our faith is in the promises of God. Um, because we're gonna come to the communion table here in a second. Um, and we're gonna put whatever they call bread or cracker or whatever that is in our mouth. Uh, and we're gonna drink that juice. Uh, and we're gonna do so knowing that I don't come to this table because I have it all figured out. I actually come to this table because the opposite is true. The only thing I figured out is that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. That that's what we have found to be True. Uh, not that uh, I can make my spiritual resume look good. I can make my moral resume look good. Um, to take of this table means we take our moral resume and we throw it down and we run to Jesus. That's why we can take this table. That's not a Presbyterian table. It's not a Midtown table. Uh, it's the meal of God for the people of God. Uh, so we can come to this table knowing uh, that Jesus Christ is gonna meet us there that you can be like Nehemiah and be so certain of exactly what God has for you, or you can be like a shaky disciple in a boat, not sure who this Jesus is at all. But you just know uh, that he's the one who says that he loves me, that he's a lover of my soul. Uh, He's the one who died on a cross for me, who satisfied the law's demand on my behalf. 
And that's what allows us to come to this table. That we can sing like we're gonna sing here in a minute. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise. On thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone can heal. Thy word can be a sweet relief for every pain I feel. That's who this table's for. Uh, Paul tells us in Corinthians that we don't take this table lightly. Uh, We don't do so uh, flippantly, uh, that we examine our hearts before we do so. So we're gonna give you the opportunity to do that. Um, Garrett and and Susan are gonna sing a song over us as we're passing out the plates. And during that time, uh, we ask that you do business with the Lord. Uh, But if you're here uh, and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, uh, first, we implore you to do so. Come find me, come find Lisa. Garrett might be able to help you out. I'm not positive. Um, Come find someone here uh, that can point you to someone that can point you to Jesus. Um, Don't leave here. Don't let another moment pass by that you don't put your faith in him. Um, Our days are numbered. Our days are short. Um, Y'all know this. You watch the news. There's so much sadness that's going on. The only one who can make sense of that is Jesus. So if you're here uh, and you haven't placed your hope in him, uh, let, this, let this tray pass you by. Uh, stay in your seat and, and do business with the Lord. Um, if you're here and there are small children, I don't think I see any in here, uh, but if you have a, a child with you who hasn't uh, had a profession of faith uh, and talked that over with a pastor or an elder, uh, we ask that you would let that uh, tray pass by as well. Uh, but for the rest of us, Uh, Those of us who have seen Jesus to be more beautiful and more believable than all those things that vie for our heart's affection. Those who of of us that can say, I believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, this is for you. Um, So I'm gonna pray for us. Uh, They're gonna play some music over us. Uh, We're gonna pass some trays. Uh, And I want you to take uh, some time during that first song to... uh, like I said before, to examine your heart, uh, to see what God has for you. Ask God where he's asking you uh, to risk greatly for his faith. Uh, Where is he asking you to make bold requests in his name? Uh, And let us all remember together, uh, fondly remember together uh, that God the Father loves us, that he loves us so deeply. Uh, So let's pray together. Father God, as we come to your table, the table that you so graciously allow us uh, to slide our knees under, uh, to sit and to sup with you. Uh, as, as the great reformer John Calvin said, uh, that when we take this bread and we drink of this cup, uh, for a moment, for a split second, we're transformed, we're transported even to heaven to poke our head in, to hear the hallelujahs that ring out around your throne, uh, knowing that in our hands is is no small thing, that we remember the body and the blood. Uh, Jesus, would you meet us here? Would you be so kind? Would we take the risk, God, to trust that you uh, really do meet us? Uh, Show us our sin. Uh, Show us that you are a great savior. Uh, Spirit, lead those here who do not trust you into uh, a relationship with the Jesus that you point everyone to. And we will leave here rejoicing because of it. And we do all these things uh, in the matchless name of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Amen.